Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I can't think of a more important passage of scripture in times like these, especially given what occurred yesterday in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I can't think of a more important passage of scripture, and as I've been preparing this for a while, uh, I can't think of a more timely uh, moment for us to think of the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I mentioned last Sunday that that would be the question that we would be exploring today, and in the providence of God, uh, as we look at the news media and at the uh, things that are going on in the world around us, I can't think of a more important question. But let me um, introduce this uh, sermon. This is the second part of the Won't You Be My Neighbor sermon series. We're looking at Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. We're going to be looking at it four different times. Uh, and so um, let me kind of introduce this week's uh, part two of this sermon series uh, by saying this, that, you know, everyone around the world loves a good Samaritan. Right? This is the passage where we learn about the Good Samaritan. And everyone is aware of a Good Samaritan. Everybody knows what the term Good Samaritan means. Or at least they think they know what the term Good Samaritan means. Um, you know, a Good Samaritan is the best person in the world. It's the best neighbor you could ever have. It's the person that you want uh, as your neighbor. Um, but it's interesting because even the world, uh, people who don't read the Bible are familiar with this term, Good Samaritan. I just did a quick Google search uh, either uh, yesterday or the day before where I, I just wanted to get a search of news stories that include the, the term Good Samaritan. And here's a sample of some of those headlines. Good Samaritan finds five-week-old kitten abandoned in dumpster. Okay, so they labeled this guy a, uh, a Good Samaritan because he rescued a kitten. All right, Good Samaritan rescues three kids from hot car in Hillsborough. All right, another article. Good Samaritan helps stop, stop attack on woman along Irvine Trail, police say. And then another headline, missing woman saved by Good Samaritan, And so the news media, the, the secular world around us, I mean, people who have never read the story of the Good Samaritan, they know what a Good Samaritan is, and everyone loves a Good Samaritan. But that's what we think of a Good Samaritan now. And the reason why we think of a Good Samaritan as good is because Jesus used a Samaritan as the hero of the story in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And the point that Jesus was making by bringing a Samaritan into the story, which we're about to read, is that Jesus was saying that this Samaritan was not considered good. The Samaritans were seen as bad. In fact, uh, Samaritans were seen as the enemy. Samaritans were hated. Samaritans were not loved. Samaritans were not considered good because they thought that Samaritans were half-breed heretics, which was a horrible way of thinking of another person. 
that they weren't pure Jews. They had intermarried into other nations, and so they were, they were not pure Jews. And because they, they didn't view things from Scripture the same way that Jews did. And so they, didn't, they had a different religion, and they had a different ethnicity. And so they saw the Samaritan as an enemy, someone who was to be rejected, someone who was to be uh, avoided at all costs. Now, we wish a good Samaritan would stop by in any time that we're going through a difficult circumstance. But then, they would have done everything they could have to avoid any Samaritan that they ever met. And so in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, we read that an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is the question that we're going to look at primarily this morning. Who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question, as we will today, but Jesus took up the question, and we thank him that he did, because he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. Now, we assume this was a Jewish man. It's in the land where Jews lived. Uh, the nationality or ethnicity is not mentioned of the man who fell into the hands of robbers, but they stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. Father, once again we bow before you asking your divine assistance not only in understanding this probably very familiar story to all of us. Uh, we, we do seek to understand it. We do seek to apply uh, truths to our minds, but Lord, we also want to apply these truths to our hearts, to our hands and to our feet. Lord, to our eyes, uh, as we see the world around us in desperate need. And so we pray, Lord, that you would uh, convict our hearts. Lord, prompt us to, uh, to follow in your footsteps, to do as you do, to be disciples of Jesus. And we pray this by your help and in your power. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I pointed out last week that Jesus never preached the whole gospel to this lawyer. 
Jesus didn't preach the gospel to this lawyer because the lawyer, the expert in the law, approached him seeking to test him. The, the expert in the law didn't seek to understand him. The expert in the law didn't have any repentance in his heart. In fact, the expert in the law sought to justify himself, which is what we vile, wicked sinners often do, is to point ourselves out as so righteous and holy and justify ourselves that who needs a savior? Who needs help from anyone else? Uh, we begin to justify our actions and justify ourselves. And this is exactly what the, the spirit in which the expert in the law approached Jesus. So Jesus never got to the gospel, though he would one day uh, be the gospel. Uh, but instead, he just answered the question that was posed to him. And if you ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, you want to know how you can do it. You want to know what must be done. And Jesus answers truthfully, or he has the, the expert in the law answer, and they discover that the answer to that question has been there all along, that you must perfectly love God. You must perfectly love others. Um, and, and so this is the requirement of the law. If you are going to inherit, if you are going to do something to inherit eternal life, then you must do it with no exception, that you must be perfect from birth to grave. You must be perfectly obedient, perfectly loving God, and perfectly loving others. And you and I both know that we have failed in that. But this expert in the law seemingly never understood that. You know, the, the lawyer came to test Jesus. I, I think it's probably unlikely that anyone in this room this morning has come to test Jesus. I don't know that anyone here is, uh, you know, maybe there is though. Maybe there's someone here who doubts Jesus. Maybe you're skeptical of who Jesus is. Maybe you've come, uh, you know, wanting to find out more about Jesus, but you want to, you want to test him. You want to validate him. Well, I want you to see in this story this morning that Jesus more than compensates uh, and, and more than validates himself as the uh, authority on what must be done to inherit eternal life. What we see in the lawyer, before we even get into the, the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? But before we get there, I, I just want to say that the lawyer um, thought, as some of us have thought in the past, or maybe some of us think now, is that the lawyer thought he was basically good. He was a basically good person. And I think most of the rest of the world thinks that people are basically good. That inherently in us, we have a desire to do good, to be good, to, uh, to live good lives. And in fact, we all at some point think that we are basically good. And sometimes even as Christians, we begin to justify ourselves. We think we're pretty good. In comparison to others, we are basically good. But the truth is, especially if you are not a child of God, if you are not a follower of Jesus, the truth is you are not basically good. You are very bad. Okay, You are not basically good. You are very bad. And because you are bad, you are headed to a very bad place. And that place, that bad place, is known in Scripture as hell. It's an eternal place of 
of, of eternal punishment and, and separation from God. Uh, you don't inherit eternal life because you are bad. You inherit this very, very, very bad place. And so Jesus is saying to this lawyer, um, in fact, look at it in verse 28 there, Luke 10, verse 28. He's saying to this lawyer, uh, if you're asking me what you must do to inherit eternal life, then you've got to be good. You've got to be perfectly good. Like love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly, love your wife perfectly, love your kids perfectly, be perfect, never sin. You've got to basically do this. He says in verse 28, you have answered correctly. He told him, do this and you will live. And that is why seeking to justify himself before God or before Jesus, who is God, but he didn't know that, but, but seeking to justify himself in the sight of Jesus, that's why this expert in the law asked the question, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, this expert in the law is asking this question, wanting to justify himself. And I think maybe there's someone here who might be uh, approaching it in that way, but I think for the most of us, we... We want to ask this question in a different way, not to justify ourselves, but to genuinely see what is it that Jesus would say in response to that question, who is my neighbor? I, I want to know sincerely. See, the expert in the law didn't care. He wanted to limit who his neighbor was. He wanted to put boundaries around who he was willing to love and who he was willing to serve. He wanted to put constraints. He wanted it to be the smallest neighborhood that could possibly be. And, and so that he didn't have to show love to a large group of people. That he didn't have to show love to his enemies. That, that if, if, if at all possible that he could limit his neighborhood and limit the people who were who deserved love and service and mercy from him, then he would be justified before Jesus that, yes, I, in fact, I do love my neighbor as myself. Because really, what we all want to do is to put so many limits on who my neighbor is, is that ultimately I am the only candidate, the only one who qualifies as my own neighbor. This is what we do. We limit who is my neighbor to the smallest group of people or even to my own self as possible because this is in our heart of sin. But you and I, if we are saved by grace in Jesus Christ alone, then, then you and I want to approach this question a little differently. Because here's what a lot of people do with this story. Now, we know that the world understands what a good Samaritan is. But there's a little bit of confusion in the church, not necessarily just in this church, but I'm just saying in Christianity uh, today about who is the good Samaritan. What is this story all about? And there's kind of uh, two different approaches to, um, to, to what this story is about. One is kind of the direction I was going last week, which I think is the first and primary need for this story. The reason why this story is recorded is so that we could see our need for a Savior. And I talked a lot about that last week because 
The truth is, I can't and you can't fully obey this law. This is extreme. What Jesus does in this story is he expands our understanding of who a neighbor is. And if you thought that you could love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and you thought you were good on that front, and so now let's move on to our neighbor, let's check how we're doing there, then you're already mistaken. But, be that as it may, let's leave that aside for a moment and say that you do love God perfectly, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And, and, but now let's move on to love your neighbor. See, what Jesus does here in this story, by introducing this Samaritan into the, into the parable, is he's saying, no, you have constrained who gets love and mercy from you to such a point that it's so small, your neighborhood is so narrow, it's so shallow, it's so weak, it's so, so small. I want to expand it as broadly as possible. Jesus could not have picked a better person to introduce into this parable. And so he's saying, by doing that, he is telling this expert in the law, and by extension, everyone who reads this divinely inspired story that has been recorded to us by Luke, the author, um, is that you and I can't love God perfectly. You and I can't love our neighbor as ourselves. We are in desperate need of a savior. You might think you're pretty good. You might think you love your neighbor on occasion, but really we all place limits on who deserves mercy and love and service from me. We all do that. We all put limits, uh, limitations on who we are willing to help. And so we are in desperate need of a savior. Aren't we thankful that God didn't look at any one of us and say, well, I'm putting a limit on the type of person that I'm willing to come after, you know, uh, based on their ethnicity, based on the color of their skin, or based on their socioeconomic status, or based on whether they're male or female. I'd like to have a lot more males in my, in my kingdom. No, he didn't do any of that. He didn't put any constraints on who he would pursue. He loves not because of anything that you merited, anything that you brought to the table. You brought your sin to the table. You are an enemy of God. And yet he came and pursued you. And so there's two approaches to this story that are often given. And one is to say, this story is about the gospel. And that is true. It's about the gospel. It's about our need for a savior. It's about our inability to obey God and to love God and love others perfectly. And so we need a savior who will come and give his life and shed his blood for our sins so that we might be saved. The, the penalty of you know, God's wrath against us has been removed because Jesus has come. We need that savior. And so this story is intended to, to point us to that need. It's, it's intended to show us that, that we can't live up to the divine expectations that are placed in, uh, in, in Scripture. But here's the danger is that we stop there, don't we? A lot of people look at the parable of the Good Samaritan and say, oh, actually, it's not about kindness. It's not about the Samaritan doing a good deed. It's not about us as Christians going out and doing 
good deeds. Instead, it's just about the gospel. It's just about personal conversion. It's just about your individual need for a Savior and for you to place your faith in Him. All of that is true, but it's not only that. The reality is that Jesus used this parable to give a, a, a richness of application to the believer, the one who would actually trust in him and to follow him on the path. It is about personal conversion. You do need a savior. And so, yes, please look to Jesus as the one who can save you and him alone. But it also stirs up the fact that God is a gracious and compassionate God, that he is a God of justice. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of compassion. He does desire for us to walk in that with him. Uh, it says in Micah 6, 6 through 8, what should I bring before the Lord? And by the way, I forgot to put all these on the scripture. I, I'm really failing this morning. Um, uh, I had a blank sheet of paper for our Sunday school outline this morning, and uh, I, I didn't have these uh, on, on, the, uh, on the screen, but um, you can find them right here in the copy of scripture. So Micah 6, 6 through 8 says, what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? What's the answer? Verse 8 is the answer. Mankind, he has told you, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. There is an action that disciples will walk in if we have been saved. See, when, when we take the story of the Good Samaritan as saying, well, I can't love God perfectly, and I can't love my neighbor perfectly, I can't love others perfectly, I'm a sinner, I'm just going to trust in Jesus, he did it perfectly, so now I'm done. Thank the Lord, I've been saved. I don't have to, I don't have to love God perfectly. I don't have to love neighbors perfectly. I don't have to love others perfectly. See, that's a wrong understanding of what he's saying. And I love what I, I mentioned last week, a, a quote from, Spur, uh, from Spurgeon. He says, what the law requires of us, the gospel produces in us. And so when Jesus says at the end of the story, go and do likewise, go and do as the Samaritan did for this Jew who was beat up and, and robbed, um, the expert in the law wasn't going to be able to accomplish this, but by God's grace and because he has transformed our lives, we are able to go and do likewise. The, the story here is about personal conversion. It is about the gospel. It is what God does in my heart because I couldn't do it on my own. But it is also about how I live it out in this world. And if we don't see that, then we are going to be um, isolating ourselves from the world. We're going to do our Bible studies. We're going to read. We might as well live in a monastery as many have done throughout church history and just live and, and pray and read our Bibles 
and, and seek to understand more and deeper things of God. And all of that is good. But if we don't live it out, then as James says, faith without works is dead. And we have been brought into the family of God to be merciful just as your father also is merciful in Luke 6, 36. And we see in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that salvation is followed by good works. Not that we are saved by works. It says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. There are many people in the church who say, well, we just need to preach the gospel. We need to just preach the gospel. Don't dabble in, you know, why bring up what's going on in the world around us? Of course they're headed for hell, so why even bring that up? Why bring up this shooting in El Paso? And this shooting in Dayton, Ohio. What, what does that have anything to do with us? They're lost. It has everything to do with us. It has everything to do with us because we have been saved by grace through faith. It was a gift to us. Jesus laid down his life for us willingly, freely, sacrificially, and saved us. Not from our works. We can't boast in what we have done because we didn't do anything. We're the, you know, as I said last week, we're, we're, the, we're the guy laying not half dead in the ditch. We're all dead. We're completely dead in our trespasses and sins. And Jesus came down and he rescued us and set us on a path. And as it says in Ephesians 2.10, that, that we are the work, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There are good works that he has prepared ahead of time for us to do. And so when we ask, who is my neighbor? We want to ask that question sincerely. We don't want to ask this question to justify ourselves because I want to see how small can I get my neighborhood to be. But instead, I want to see how impossible the task is. I want to see that my neighbor is anyone and everyone, regardless of gender or race or, or age or anything. But instead, I see the vast need of the world around me, just as God did when he sent his son to rescue us. And so let me give you this answer to what I think the text is telling us, who is my neighbor? My neighbor is any human in need that God has specifically given me an opportunity to selflessly love and serve. Let me give you that definition again. That, that's just my answer, my way of articulating it, but I think it comes right out of the text, is that my neighbor is any human in need that God has specifically given me the opportunity to selflessly love and serve. Jesus made the Samaritan good. He chose a Samaritan 
who was ethnically despised by the Jews and who was theologically rejected by the Jews. He had different viewpoints. And so Jesus uses a Samaritan to help this Jewish expert in the law understand who is my neighbor. So my neighbor is any human in need. It's any human in need. You know, I remember as a kid, uh, I grew up in church. My dad was was a pastor. He's retired now. Um, served in rural churches in Alabama. And back in, towards the latter part of 1980 or so, uh, the 1980s, um, I remember as a kid going to a, a predominantly white um, church. I don't, I don't remember any other ethnicities in my church growing up, but there, there were mostly white people. It was just kind of the, I, I didn't think, I didn't know of anything different. But I remember as a child, um, probably nine or ten years old, a black homosexual man who was dying of AIDS entered our church on a Sunday night. And again, this was a mostly white church. He came in on a Sunday night. And he asked for prayer because he had given, been given a short amount of time to live. And if you remember anything about the 80s and maybe even into the 90s, homosexuality and AIDS in particular was viewed by the church as a judgment against the homosexual community and that it was contagious. Like if you touched you know, you, this person was a, uh, a pariah, this person was viewed by especially religious people at the time and, and really the scientific community didn't know as much as we do now, but they, they viewed this person as contagious. This was like a leper walking into our church. And I will never forget at that time, and I didn't know much about the situation at all, but it was unique to me uh, seeing this happen, that my dad, who was the pastor of that little, you know, mostly Caucasian church, knelt with this man at the altar put his arm around him and prayed for him. And that, that act of compassion has stuck with me for 30 plus years. Because no one would have done that at that time in our history. You know, for the Jew, when they looked at the Samaritans, the Samaritan was an outcast. It was an enemy. It was someone to avoid like a plague. Um, so, so love your neighbor as yourself was interpreted by the expert in the law in this passage. He thought of this more as love your enemy and hate, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In other words, love people of your own tribe or even love your people of other Jewish tribes, but hate the Samaritans, hate the Gentiles. Don't even go in their towns and villages or you have to ritually purify yourself. You've got to wash your hands and, and, and burn your robes and, and get rid of all the filth just by associating with someone who is not a Jew or, or, or one of uh, your tribe members. 
But it's interesting because Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, No, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, so even this idea that the Samaritan was a neighbor was something that people had come up with. It wasn't something in Scripture. It wasn't something that God had written. It was something that the Jewish people had begun to hate and despise other nationalities. In fact, in Leviticus, in their own law, this expert in the law should have known this. In chapter 19, verses 33 and 34, it says, When an, when an alien, or in some verses, uh, some translations, it's stranger, or foreigner, or immigrant, resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This was always the case, to love your enemies, to love the stranger, to love the immigrant, to love the hard and broken people of the world. This is God's heart. And so I want us to be able to see the nations next door to us in Suffolk County. I want us to see the immigrants. I want us to see the strangers and the foreigners. I want us to see those who are of a different skin tone than me or you. I want us to see past uh, the, 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 the gender or the ethnic distinctions and see the heart of the person who's living next door to me. And I think the reason why we don't is because we live in a land that fuels fear. We need to understand something that there are 60 million people worldwide who have been forcibly displaced from their homes. They can't help it. There's nothing they can do about it. They have been forcibly displaced from their homes. That's 60 million people around the world today who are having to live in a different land or live in a different home or live on the street or they have some, some uh, reason been displaced. Now, 20 million of those forced by persecution have had to seek refuge in a neighboring land. This is uh, more than any time in all of recorded human history. There's never been this many refugees, this many people who have had to resettle or be uh, displaced from their homes. Now that's 20 million people who had to come from their country of origin and go across borders into another land. Now only 105,000, 105,000 of those refugees are resettled annually to developed nations. Usually it's a, a, a nation very similar in ethnicity or makeup, but only 105,000 out of 60 million total are resettled annually to developed nations. And in 2015, the U.S. accepted 70,000. Now in 2019, that number was cut to 30,000, and our president is desiring to cut that number to zero next year. 
Did I mention that 20 million of the people who have been forced by persecution to seek refuge in a neighboring land, half of those are children? I don't know what your political leanings are. That's not our discussion here when we open God's word. But what I do have a concern for is are you seeing your neighbor? Are you compassionate towards the families who have to be displaced? And by the way, our, the current administration and many elected officials believe that they can reduce the refugee uh, asylum process down to zero next year is because he, the president, and this administration has the support of the white evangelical community, which I think is a sad shame. And this is because of fear. Including 9-11, according to the Cato Institute, C-A-T-O Institute, the chance of a person perishing in a terrorist attack on U.S. soil committed by any foreigner is 1 in 3.8 million per year. Now, of course, people come on various visas. There are many foreigners in our land. And the chance of an American being murdered in a terrorist attack by a refugee, someone seeking asylum from us, coming to us for help, needing help, having their children with them, someone seeking asylum, the chance of an American being murdered in a terrorist attack by any one of these refugees is one in 3.86 billion. On the other hand, the chance of being murdered by a native-born terrorist is about one in 28 million per year. Now, I don't want to bore you with a whole lot of stats, but let me just say that this, these are facts. This is not Republican. This is not Democrat. This is not political. This is truth. There were 192 foreign-born terrorists who planned, attempted, or carried out attacks on U.S. soil from 1975 to 2017. 192 foreign, foreign terrorists. 65% of them were Islamists. Okay, that's a big majority of those who were foreign, foreign terrorists. 18% were foreign nationalists, 6% were right-winger, 6% were non-Islamic religious terrorists, 3% were left-wingers. But there were four times as many native-born terrorists in that same span of time, from 1975 to 2017. There were 788 native-born terrorists, and 24% of them were right-wingers. 22% were white supremacists. 16% were left-wingers. 14% were Islamists. 11% were anti-abortion, and 6% were unspecified or unknown. And I pulled these, this data from Pew Research and Cato Institute well before the events of yesterday. This was planned. This was something the Lord had impressed upon me to share with you this morning. And so I'm not accounting for the 20 people who were slaughtered yesterday by a native-born terrorist who time will tell his motivations. And yet, for some reason, we can't see beyond our own fear. 
We're trusting in a great, big, beautiful wall to save us when we have a Savior who is sending us out as good Samaritans. But we're unwilling to do it. In fact, white evangelical Christians is the group least likely to look to the Bible for answers to how to treat foreigners and most likely to reject refugees and, uh, uh, in fact, a recent study by LifeWay Research reveals that the Bible only influences one in ten evangelicals on immigration. That's 10%. And only 0.2% find that the local church influences them on this matter. Because no one's talking about it. No one is willing to open up and have a hard look at what it means to to, to consider who is my neighbor. Pew Research said that um, evangelicals are the group most unlikely to believe we have an obligation to admit those who are displaced. In other words, that we don't want to welcome them into our borders. The, rel the religiously unaffiliated 65% believe that we have an obligation to welcome refugees and asylum seekers. Black Protestants, 63%. Catholics, 50%. White mainline Protestants, 43%. They all believe in those statistics that we should welcome refugees. Who knows what the number is, but they believe that we have an obligation to bring asylum seekers in. People who are fleeing for their lives. But only 25% of white evangelicals believe that we have a, resp a responsibility to admit the displaced. The heart of God is reflected in Scripture. The story of the Good Samaritan is not only for our personal conversion, our Understanding that we need a savior, but it is also reflective of the fact he brings in a Samaritan to make this point that we need to see a neighbor in need, and that neighbor might very well be considered an enemy. We need to treat them as one of us, as it says in Leviticus 19. And so we need to see the next door nations. There are people living next to us. There are people uh, living across from us. There are people in our neighborhood. There are people in our county who are from all sorts of different nationalities, and, and they're here for all sorts of different reasons. And we need to treat them as native-born. It is not my job. I am not a Border Patrol agent. Okay, I am not a member of the Immigration and, and Customs Enforcement Agency. I am a child of God. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And there is a, a, an obligation on my part to show compassion regardless of if someone is legal or illegal. It's not my job. Now in the voting booth, I can vote for different policies and positions and that's fine. But as far as being a neighbor, the Good Samaritan didn't stoop down and ask the man, are you legal or illegal? He didn't ask him, are you Samaritan or Jew? So this has been on my heart because as I look at this question, who is my neighbor? I wonder, are we limiting 
Are we constraining who our neighbor is, is, who deserves mercy from me? Would I limit it to those who are pro-life? Would I limit it to those who are uh, pro-biblical marriage? Would I limit it to those who aren't poor? Would I limit it to people who look like me? If I'm putting any constraints because I'm looking at someone's appearance and I'm seeing the color of their skin or I'm seeing their economic status and I start making assumptions about who they are, am I passing by on the other side? You see, here's what happens is my understanding of this text is that Jesus answers the question. Of course, the expert in the law was seeking to justify himself, and then he goes away and doesn't do anything about it. But, but my neighbor is any human in need that God has specifically given me an opportunity to selflessly love and serve. You know, we see in verse 33 and 34 that a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had he went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and then put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. See, God has specifically given me an opportunity. Someone is in my path. Someone is my neighbor. Um, someone uh, has, has shown that they have a need, and, and I'm aware of that need. And I have an opportunity in that moment to show love, to be merciful as my father is merciful. I remember um, a couple of stories in, that happened when I was serving as a, as a pastor in Queens. I would often go to a Dunkin' Donuts nearby and have my laptop and, and work there, get some coffee. And I got to know a number of the, of the employees there. And we started to develop a, a little bit of a, a friendship and they knew about me and I would you know, take opportunities to share about my faith at times. Uh, but one time, I was sitting there minding my own business, working on my laptop, uh, either doing some emails or working on a sermon or something, and um, a, a, a white man, an elderly gentleman, comes in and begins yelling at the staff, at these employees. Now, these are people I've, I know their names, I've, I've gotten to know them a little bit. Um, they are from Egypt. These employees were, most of the people who were on staff at this Dunkin' Donuts were from Egypt. And he starts yelling at them. And, you know, I'm like, what is this about? And he, he starts complaining about something, and, and clearly he's just off base uh, with what he's talking about. And really just belligerent, just angry. And at one point, he just, he just tells them, like, nobody wants you here to these Egyptian workers who were serving coffee, you know, and I, at this point, hadn't said anything, but then this man sees me there, I guess he looks at the color of my skin, and he starts talking to me and asking me to agree with him, as if I'm just going to naturally take his side on this matter, and so I looked at him, and I said, sir, th these, you know, this, this man and, and these two women would probably be happy to serve you if you weren't yelling at them. And so I'm trying to speak peacefully to him, trying to resolve the situation. And he says, he says to me, like, oh, you're just, you know, you just love them. Like, you, you just uh, care more about them than about us. 
I'm like, what does that mean? And so then I'm, I'm starting, and I have to be honest, I, I'm starting to get a little heated about this. And I, I just pushed back and I said, sir, you come in here yelling. There's nobody who wants to listen to this. And, you know, I'm over here minding my own business. You think I'm going to side with you? Like, and, and I'm just, I'm actually kind of getting involved and probably shouldn't have and maybe a better way that I could have done it. But I just, I, I just kind of like put my foot down and finally he just is like, I've had enough of this and he leaves. But let me tell you the kind of door that was unlocked with these Egyptian workers. They came over to me and said, thank you. No one has ever treated us the way you just did and, and so, such a gracious and, and helping way. And they were so thankful. In fact, the next five or six times that I came in, if I saw any one of these employees, they would introduce me to other employees that weren't there and tell them the whole situation, like how uh, Nathan came to came to help them in their time of need, and and, and even introducing me to uh, to customers and just telling them the whole situation. And I it unlocked doors where I was able to share with them more about the faith because I was willing to take their side and, and, and not really take their side, but sort of plead their cause and stand up for them. You know, they don't need to go back somewhere. They don't, we don't need to send her back or go back to, to, to the place where you came from. That's not loving and compassionate. And so I remember this experience and, and I share that with you not to put myself up as some sort of a, a, a good Samaritan, but to say that we all have opportunities placed in front of us to care for people in need. And just to make sure you understand that I'm not presenting myself as, as some sort of a model for this, I actually, on another occasion, was in a Wendy's with my family. And another elderly white man uh, was being belligerent with the lady at the desk who was trying to serve him, uh, I think it was an ice cream cone or something. And he was arguing with her that, you know, uh, she had messed up his order in some way. And, and she was patiently explaining why that wasn't true. And at one point, he just looked at her and he said, where are you from? And she said, Indonesia. And he said, well, you should go back there. And I was the only person at that counter other than a young black man who was, who was waiting on his order. And the reason I'm giving you kind of like ethnic details is for the purpose of this story, is to say that the only thing I did in that moment was I looked at the man with disgust. I, I just was like, are you kidding me? And I looked at the black man who was standing waiting for his food and he and I just exchanged a look of like, what is going on? And his face, even though he was young and strong and this man was old and weak, he was fearful. This black man who was waiting on his food. And I said nothing. I did nothing. And I missed that opportunity. Because there was a way that I could have graciously said to this person, friend, this woman just wants to serve you. She's here just as freely as you are. There's no reason for you to, to speak to her like this. 
this. I could have just very simply done that, and yet I didn't. And I'm sharing all of these details to, to, to illustrate that every day there are people from other nations, there are people from other backgrounds, there are people who are in the LGBTQ community, there are people who are uh, you know, poor, there are people who are immigrants, there are people all around us who are looking for help. The question is, are we asking, is this person my neighbor? Has the Lord placed me in this position so that I can help meet a need? So as we close on asking this question, who is my neighbor? I hope you see that our neighbor, Jesus, was saying it's broader than you think. Don't put limitations on who you are willing to help based on skin color, based on economic status or anything else. So let me give you a couple of application points very quickly. One is, let's look at scripture. I want to encourage you to do a Bible study on how we are to treat immigrants and sojourners in our land. Jesus used this hypothetical Samaritan to bring up our cultural and ethnic differences to show that this person is my neighbor, that I am that person's neighbor. As well, Let's look at scripture to find out how we are to treat other humans that are made in the image of God. Number two, look at your neighbor. Who is living next door to you? Who is in your town? If someone is of a different skin color than you, don't just automatically assume that person is a foreigner. I've seen this all the time. Like people are shocked when they meet somebody uh, of a different ethnicity and they're like, um, you know, where are you from? Detroit. Oh. <laughs> oh, really? As, as if people of different skin tones can't be from here. I mean, this is just real ridiculous. Like, look at your neighbor. See them. Have compassion on them. See, our political parties might tell us that a person is an enemy. But Jesus says, love your enemy. Love your neighbor. Your morality might lead you to conclude a person is an enemy. But Jesus says, love your enemies, even if you disagree with them biblically, morally. And your own instinct might tell you that someone is an enemy. But Jesus says, love your enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself. Third, look for opportunities to meet needs. Look for opportunities to meet needs. Showing compassion is what drew people to Jesus in the first place. He ministered to their needs, and then they stuck around to hear his teaching. People are going to be more open to your faith and your beliefs if you have shown compassion. If you show the gospel, then you will have opportunities to share the gospel. And then finally, I want to say, look at the gospel. Look at scripture. Look at your neighbor. Look for opportunities to meet needs. And look at the gospel. You and I need the gospel even more desperately now than when we were first saved. We need to see in scripture, we need to see in Jesus, the one who is willing to die for his enemies. And we need to follow his example. Who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is any human in need that God has specifically given you the opportunity to selflessly love. 
and certain. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for this example of the Good Samaritan that we can continue to look at this text and find truth, find application for our own lives, and we just pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to walk in mercy and love and compassion, and that you would be glorified in us and in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs> at this time...